This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. No one won the big mega millions jackpot last night, which means Friday the 13th could be lucky. Turns out that Michigan tickets generally win the Friday the 13th jackpots for some reason. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and making her first appearance of 2023, Courtney Astolfi. She's been busy moving into a new house. Hi, Courtney. Good morning. Good to be officially a Cleveland homeowner. We're going to get you right into it. You get the first question. Ohio's Jim Jordan is the head of it. What is the purpose of the new select subcommittee on the weaponization of federal government? My favorite line in all the reporting about this was the Democrats saying this is true tin hat stuff or aluminum foil hat stuff. Yeah. So what we know about this committee, you know, it the Democrats are saying that this is clearly going to be, you know, a partisan tool that could even be used to protect the former president. But it it seems like it has wide ranging authority to probe whatever the, you know, Republican concern is at the moment. So we, we heard from Jordan in a floor speech yesterday before the House Republicans gave approval, voted along party lines to form this committee. And in that floor speech, Jordan was accusing the Justice Department of treating parents like terrorists. He was talking about the FBI paying Twitter $3 million to, quote, censor American citizens. He was talking about the Department of Homeland Security and and, and abortion protesters and comparing, I guess, abortion protesters getting arrested when other protesters outside Supreme Court Justice's house weren't. I mean, the, the Republicans hit a variety of topics here talking about what this committee would explore. But like you said, the Democrats, you know, I, I thought that poignant quote from Democratic Rep. Jim McGovern uh, of Massachusetts kind of said it. He said that the MAGA extremist fringe of the Republican Party will use this committee to push QAnon conspiracy theories and lies from True Social, which is, you know, Trump's social media site. McGovern said they're going to use it to gin up fake investigations into non-existent scandals. And like you said, I think we just need to start calling this the tinfoil hat committee. Well, Jim Jordan's the perfect guy for it, right? He's the perfect guy to step into the modern day role of McCarthy. What's sad is, is they're giving a false equivalency to the January 6th commission. In January 6th, we nearly had our government toppled, but because of exhortations by the president, it is a shocking display what happened there. And we needed to get to the bottom of it. We've never had the Capitol under assault like that. And it, it was terroristic. It was all sorts of things. And we needed to get to the bottom of it. None of this other stuff comes anywhere close to the level of that. And yet they're trying to say it's the same thing and they're going to have the same powers and it'll be a circus for the next couple of years. The only thing I think that gets in their way is Americans, except for the fringe loons, are tired of this. They've made it really clear they're tired of this ridiculous rancor. So I'm not sure that they're onto something. But like I said, Jim Jordan, the perfect stooge to run this. 
Well, and, and we know he wanted to head up committees when there was that whole discussion of him um, as the potentially the House Speaker. So, I mean, you can see this is his niche. This is where he wants to go with his time in office over the coming years. And it just seems a lot of the things they brought up aren't, like you said, aren't, aren't scandals, or I don't even know what references to half of these things are about. But we also heard from Jerry Nadler here, the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, and and, and he thought that this could be used to kind of defend former President Trump. He thought it would be used to to launch open-ended investigations into conspiracy theories. I, I think the, the House Democrats have a sense of where this is going just as much as the Republicans do. Well, and it's a soundbite generator for far-right news media. And Jim Jordan, the, he's like their favorite son because he amplifies these talking points. So that's really what it's about. And it's going to distract us from what's really going on. I do think, though, that Jim Jordan has existed by sitting in the cheap seats and lobbing grenades. Now he's going to be front and center. And does he have the capacity to do that without looking like a fool? I think there's a big question about that. This could be the worst thing that's ever happened to Jim Jordan because it might out him for what he is. Well, we'll have to watch. But I think you're right. It's going to divert a lot of attention from what's important. And it's only playing to a, a small percentage of Americans. Most of America doesn't really have an interest in this nonsense, but that's not who their base is. It's today in Ohio. First Donald Trump did it, now Joe Biden. What does a prominent Ohio congressman have to say about the discovery of classified documents or potentially classified documents from Biden's days as vice president in an office building in D.C.? Lisa, this is a distressing turn. It is, and it comes, it's rather ill-timed as well. Um, Republican Mike Turner, who's uh, a representative from Dayton, he t- he's the top Republican on the, on the House Select Committee on Intelligence, and he's in line to chair that committee. He wrote a letter to National Intelligence Director Avril Haines demanding a full and thorough review of these classified documents, which were found November 2nd, the week before the election, in a locked closet at Penn Biden Center in D.C., Biden had an office there after he left the vice presidency in 2017, and these documents were found in this locked closet when attorneys were clearing out his office. Uh, The president's special counsel, Richard Sauber, he said that the White House counsel was told immediately about the discovery of these documents. The National Archives and Records took custody of them within 24 hours. Turner, for his part, he says this, he sees it as a potential violation of the Espionage and Presidential Records Acts. He seeks classified briefing and, uh, he said that there are reports that Biden removed and retained highly classified information in an insecure office for six years. So hmm. Jim Jordan, when talking to CNN, said that it's interesting that this was known a week before the election and maybe the American people should have known about it, too. Well, I think all of that is correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you can't you can't compare this to what Donald Trump did. Donald Trump hoarded classified documents and then thwarted the investigation. When the archives department was coming saying we need those documents, he claimed he didn't have them. So it's a completely different thing, but 
that you're not supposed to have classified documents out in places where anybody can get them. The only good thing that can come out of this in my mind is maybe it'll discourage him from seeking reelection so that we can get rid of this old guard of politicians and get some new faces. But I think the Republicans are right to demand answers about this. This is distressing. What was Biden thinking? Agreed. But it, but it is a false equivalence to compare it to what Trump did. So yes, there's no word. There's no question that this is distressing. And it makes you wonder how many other classified documents from previous presidents and vice presidents are rattling around out there unsecured. Well, the sad thing is, this isn't what Donald Trump did, but it's going to make it much harder now to to prosecute Donald Trump for doing it. Donald Trump willfully took a whole bunch of secret documents, put them in an unsecure place, and then tried to hide what he did and lied about it afterwards. I mean, the whole thing is is a sinister plot to to keep the documents. That's not what Biden did, but what Biden did does seem to break the law unless they determine these had been declassified he did the, he did we're talking about the same kind of laws here it's mm-hmm. it's bad news for for the federal government when people of high office break the law. And that's what it appears happened here. Well, I've heard that there are some calls in some quarters for the National Archives Group to really do an inventory before a president leaves office to make sure things like this don't happen again. Yeah, well, that appears like it might be a good idea. I mean, if he committed a crime, he could be kicked out of office. I mean, we could end up with um, with Harris as president. It, it, it's a big story. It's, it's as big a story as we've seen this year. It's Today in Ohio. With the controversial Browns season ending in defeat Sunday, we went out to see what fans were thinking. This season started with a lot of disgust among fans because of the Browns bringing in quarterback Deshaun Watson in spite of accusations of sexual abuse of massage therapists. Laura, what do the fans think now? Well, there's not one single feeling that every fan shares, but I don't think anyone is thrilled with Watson or his performance or the team in general. John Tucker wrote a really thoughtful story where he talked to a lot of fans, including some who were at a bar in Lakewood watching the final game of the season, which, of course, we lost to the Steelers. And he said there was no one wearing a Watson jersey. And I don't think I've seen anyone wearing a Watson jersey so far or driving, you know, with a vanity license plate that says Watson forever. Like, I don't think it's happening. I don't think he's got a whole coterie of fans. And this has been a dramatic year for Browns fans. They've been up and down this roller coaster. Uh, All the headlines early in the year with Watson dominating. And then the, the legal troubles and the NFL making the decision of how long he would be out. So I think there it was a disappointing season. I think they've begrudgingly accepted Watson. And the line of discussion now is more about how well he's doing and it's not as well as anybody would have hoped than it was about the sexual abuse from massage therapists of the massage therapists. Yeah. It was interesting that a lot of the people in the story were focused more on they stink. They Mm -hmm. they always stink. They always let you down. Uh, the, The average lifespan of a quarterback in the NFL is four years. So there is a chance that Watson who was not good in the games he played won't be what he was ever again. And that, and they ransom their future for it. So what I was reading in the story was a lot of that defeatism that the Mm -hmm. Browns fans have. The Haslam's have been terrible owners. They have not done pretty much anything right. There are a lot of people who wish they would sell the team to somebody that would try and try and get better at it. 
but but it was interesting how the the, the sensitivity there were still people saying i'm done with them i can't mm-hmm. believe they brought in a sexual abuser but but it's i i felt like most people were saying they stink they always let us down right exactly this is just another year for the browns there's always next year but this is what they do. I mean, here's a quote. It's the Browns. They screw everything up. Fans are loyal because we're stupid. I mean, that's <laughs> what a fan is saying. And he's actually got season's tickets, this guy that that John Tucker talked to. He said the Browns are charging him more than about $500 more per season uh, ticket this year, which that's a lot of money if they're collecting it from thousands of people because to, to pay that $230 million paycheck for Deshaun Watson. And he well, said think, it felt he felt directly related. And think about what's happening in their division. You know, Cincinnati is a very good football team, could go deep in the playoffs. Pittsburgh, after losing their star quarterback for years, is already showing signs of rebuilding. You have the Ravens and the Detroit Lions, who were almost as bad as the Browns for a long time, are rising. So the Browns are becoming the low-level team in this division despite Again. spending this money. And they're saying, "Hey, hey, don't don't pay no attention to this past season. We'll have a different a different team next year." It's like, "Why should we believe you? We've we've gotten There's down this always road. infighting among the players. There's always, you know, I I think I say this every game. I don't know how they come up with so many different ways to lose. I mean, it's just like, it's not just that they're bad, right? It's that they get everyone's hopes up all the time and then they lose in a spectacular fashion. I I don't understand how people are so loyal, but they are. Clevelanders are a very loyal bunch. Okay, it's today in Ohio. One of the most critical elements of Say Yes to Education in Cleveland is under threat. It's the group of people that provided the needed wraparound services to the students to help get them to college. Courtney, how is Mayor Justin Bibb trying to help, and is it enough? Yeah, so we saw Bibb jump in to try and help patch over this funding gap that we learned about, you know, a few months ago. Um, So the Say Yes program, like you said, involves scholarship money for, for Cleveland kids to go to college. But those wraparound services are really important here. It connects them with food, housing, whatever they need to help them be successful folks and and successful in school. And, um, you know, you remember that that funding source fell short. Cuyahoga County thought that it could use some federal foster kid money to help pay for these support specialists years ago, but it didn't end up shaking out that there were enough foster kids in CMSD schools to really use that as the funding source they wanted it to be. And we have this $3 million gap to keep these support specialists on through July. Otherwise, there's a potential for layoffs here. Bibb stepped in, but he he is not covering that whole gap. Bibb, um, in, in legislation this week, proposed spending $600,000 in Cleveland ARPA money, some of that federal aid, to cover part of that $3 million gap. And the Say Yes program is confident they'll, that they'll close the rest of that $3 million hole. But as on the public side, we don't know where that money's coming from or if they'll be able to be successful. Yeah. The problem here is that this is a, a band-aid. We need a permanent fix. These folks, these are the ones that, that do the emergency, right? The kid doesn't have clothes. So they figure out a way to make sure the kids get the clothes and they get them laundered, or there's some trauma going on in their lives and they find a way to get them the counseling they need. This was one of the most important elements of Say Yes to Education, recognizing that Cleveland children have 
extra challenges you don't see in the suburbs. It's the whole point of our Cleveland Promise story is to show these challenges. These are the people that fix it, and they're the ones in jeopardy. It, it's why it was so infuriating. The Cuyahoga County Council squandered $66 million on their little pet slush funds projects because that money could have gone a long way to helping here. The county has provided some money, but not enough. But this doesn't solve the problem for the long term. It's a Band-Aid. Right. It is a Band-Aid. You know, the the city, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe the city's ever kicked in for this part of the program. So it's kind of different that the city's stepping up here. It makes sense why it would want to. It's it's Cleveland kids. I, I, I'm curious if the county will seek to use any more of its money to cover the rest of the gap, if those comes from nonprofit partners. It, it's a big question mark still here. Yeah, we need a long-term funding mechanism to guarantee that these folks will be around for the long term, especially as we switch from one school CEO to another at the end of this school year. So good stuff. It's today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We keep learning of more ramifications of laws passed in the lame duck session of the Ohio legislature in December. Jake Zuckerman has found more bad news for Ohio air quality. Lisa, it's not declaring natural gas as green energy, but it's not good. And it's potentially bad news. We don't know that this is actually going to happen. But House Bill 364, which was signed last week, creates exceptions to a 1993 moratorium on new permits for hazardous waste incinerators in Ohio. The first exception is for facilities that are installing improved emission controls to comply with federal mandates. And the second exception is for facilities that want to treat more waste and are either at or near capacity right now. But these exceptions only apply to plants that were in operation before April 1993, which actually covers, I believe, all four of the ones here in Ohio. So Ohio has four hazardous waste incinerators. There are only 24 nationwide. So that means that we have like one sixth of them. Um, They do say that this legislation does not apply to the East Liverpool plant, Heritage Thermal Services, because that was the one that kicked off this moratorium. But this will allow the Ross Incineration Services plant in Lorain County to expand. But a spokesman for Ross says there are no definitive plans yet to expand, expand, but any expansion must still comply with federal regulations on hazardous waste emissions. Yeah, it, it, the, the moratorium was put into place because there were fears. We don't have the best quality air in Ohio. We constantly are under warnings about it. That's why we have e-check. And it's distressing that, again, we're taking steps to make it worse. When are we going to start thinking about what we're doing to our environment? Well, and there, we, we talked to an expert who said that really burning this stuff, because that's what they do. It's things like PCBs, PFAs, solvents, pesticides, known carcinogens are incinerated at very, very high temperatures. But actually, that's kind of old technology, and it's not really the best technology. Yeah, it was a good find by Jake, but but not good news for Ohio or anybody who breathes. It's today in Ohio. 
The Ohio Liquor Control Commission stopped alcohol sales at 10 p.m. during the pandemic, as we know, and then revoked an Akron Tavern's license for breaking the rule. What is the tavern arguing now before the Ohio Supreme Court, Laura, and does it have much chance of winning? Well, they're arguing the rules were unconstitutional because they've specifically had the right to sell drinks after 1 a.m. That was from a law passed by the state legislature that allowed permits permit holders to do that. And it's funny how much you block out from the pandemic, right? Like this story made me go back to when the liquor investigators would go out to bars and every weekend we'd get press releases saying this bar broke this rule. There were too many people. There was crowding. They were selling alcohol after the closing time of 10 p.m. And they're getting basically a demerit. Well, Highland Tavern got enough that they got shut down in October of 2020 after three violations of Rule 80. And that was what the Ohio Liquor Control Commission had ordered to stop the spread of COVID. And so the attorney's asking the Supreme Court to invalidate Rule 80 and rule that the bar is allowed to pursue in a separate administrative appeal to have its liquor license reinstated because this is two and a half years down the road and the bar never reopened. And they're arguing that the Liquor Commission has the authority to shorten bars hours of operation, but there are separate laws that govern the liquor permits for their, their right to sell. And they're saying this was a breach of the separation of powers among the different branches of state government, which is really interesting. The Supreme Court's basically saying, isn't this moot? The pandemic's over. The bar is closed. What do you want us to do about it now? But it does raise some really interesting questions. I, I actually don't think it does. Remember what the reason for this was. People were, there was no vaccine and mm-hmm. people were spreading this virus pretty wanton, wantonly. The thought was the longer they drink, the more loose they get about safeguards and it'll spread more. So let's close the bars at 10 to reduce that possibility. It was very much about stemming the spread of a fatal virus for many people. Th- that's emergency powers. That's what what mm-hmm. you do in times of a crisis. Um, with our Supreme Court now, it, the way that it's composed and with Sharon Kennedy leading it, who knows what they'll do. But you would hate to see the state lose the right in a time of crisis to put some controls in to keep everybody safe. I I don't disagree with you. I mean, it was an emergency situation, and it's hard to remember exactly how it felt back then, how dire everything was. But there's been so many lawsuits since then from so many business owners saying they don't have the right. And, you know, the Republican legislature got got, um, into passing their own laws saying they can't do this and it's been all after the fact you're right i don't want the liquor control commission or the state not to be able to take emergency action in the future but i do think that they should be able to have their liquor license back now i mean we're not in a pandemic the the other thing people should remember is that the bars and restaurants got significant money from stimulus money because of being forced to close and all the money they lost. So the bars that had to close at 10 and lose their liquor sales were able to apply for and get significant amounts of money to replace the revenue they lost. So it wasn't just, we're cutting you off and the hell with you. It was, we're cutting you off, but there's a way for you to try and not maybe get whole, but but survive this pandemic. We'll have to see what they do. I won't be surprised at all if the Supreme Court rules that this shouldn't ever happen. The Supreme Court is going to be making 
bizarre rulings going forward. It's today in Ohio. We've been waiting for a year to find out whether Warrensville Heights Mayor Brad Sellers will face charges for giving himself a break on his own property taxes. That's not something you're allowed to do when you're an elected mayor. The investigation is done, but we'll have to wait a little longer, Courtney. How come? Yeah, so where we're at now in the Sellers case is the Ohio Ethics Commission up until now has been conducting its own investigation of this whole situation. And on December 9th, it passed its findings along back to Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley. But Mike O'Malley doesn't want to pursue the case himself. He's he's backing it off and he's sending it out to a special prosecutor, the Summit County Prosecutor's Office, for review. And down in Summit County, they're going to be the ones who decide whether to seek charges against sellers as a result of these tax abatement things, right? And and just to give people a refresh, sellers granted himself a, a property tax abatement in 2018. As part of that, he signed a document saying he was debt-free um, to get the property tax abatement. He, he cited this rule that public safety officials can get abatements. And he claimed he was a, a law enforcement official in his role as mayor and public safety director. So so after Caitlin Durbin broke this story early, about a year ago, and, and that, that reporting caused sellers to drop out of the Cuyahoga County executive race, this went to the Ohio Ethics Commission for review. They're the body that's kind of charged with looking at this kind of thing. And in this report that they passed to O'Malley, that a lot of the, these charge determinations are going to be based upon once Summit County gets its hands on it. You know, that report isn't for public consumption. We don't know what's in there. We don't know what the recommendations are. But it is worth noting, you know, Ohio law seems to clearly pro- prohibit the things that Brad Sellers was doing yeah, here. Yeah. I mean, we don't know what's in the report, but we know what we reported and he's in trouble. And Sherry Bevan Walsh is a very respected prosecutor. I'm sure she'll do the right thing. And if I were Sellers, I'd be looking to make a deal as fast as possible because this is serious stuff. It's today in Ohio. When pretty much any adult without a criminal record can carry a gun without a permanent Ohio, Why is the city of Cleveland disarming the security force that protects the city's utilities? Lisa, since 9-11, the utilities have been a major focus of worry. You would think the people that we have guarding them would have the ability to protect themselves and stop terrorism. And, you know, grids like utility and, and electricity and water grids have been under attack recently. I mean, North Carolina, Washington State has had several attacks on their utility stations. But the Cleveland Public Utility Protection services. It's a group of special police officers that protect water and electricity plants and city employees from attack. They also work at other plants outside of the Cleveland city limits. And they've operated as special police officers and for 20 years until last September. That's when the city said that it's no longer legal to have special officers and they would have to give up their city-owned weapons, which were confiscated almost immediately after this ruling. Uh, General Counsel Danielle Chaffin with the Ohio Patrolman's Benevolent Association saying they're fighting to get their weapons restored. She says this leaves officers defenseless. They're an essential part, of, you know, a weapon is a central part of their job duties and it also violates 
violates the collective bargaining agreement that the city has with these officers. Now, previous mayors, there's a commission to, that allows them to carry weapons. It has to be renewed every six months. Previous mayors did that, but Justin Bibb and safety director Carrie Howard say they don't have that authority. Uh, so the uh, Benevolent Policemen's Association filed for a temporary restraining order in common police court. And uh, I think the commissions have been temporarily reinstated while this works its way through the court. I, But I don't get the gun laws have all changed. Anybody can carry a gun. I Why can't they just say, well, under Ohio law, we'll let them carry guns while they do their job? Well, it's a head scratcher. I mean, they didn't really give any reason other than they didn't have the authority to, you know, commission these officers. So that's a little distressing. But yeah, they're, you know, with, like I said, with attacks on infrastructure on the rise, this is not a good idea. Yeah, this was a very strange story. I, uh, I, I was, you're right. I was scratching my head after I read it. It's on Cleveland.com, and you are listening to Today in Ohio. Who knew? One of the key players in Hamilton at Playhouse Square grew up in Northeast Ohio. Who is he, and what is his special story given this appearance in the latest Hamilton run in Cleveland? Laura. His name is Warren Egypt Franklin. He's 25 from the Glenville neighborhood of Cleveland originally and then moved to Bedford as a teenager. He's performed in 700 touring Hamilton shows as Lafayette and Jefferson, which I want to argue is one of the most difficult roles to pull off and one of the most just entertaining and memorable and great. And he's actually leaving the show on Sunday when it leaves Cleveland. So this is Sunday will be his last performance. He said he's had family and friends in the room where it happens nearly every night since the show opened on Playhouse Square on December 6th. And that's been really special for them to be able to see him. And he just sounds like a fantastic guy. He went to BW for college. He got the role of Lafayette and Jefferson right out of college. I think the callback was, um, I want to say his graduation day. Yeah. And uh, then he was right there. So he's been doing it pretty straight since college, which is just quite an accomplishment. Well, what's interesting is one of the lines in Hamilton is you don't get to tell your own story. But through this, through the piece we wrote, he really did get to tell his own story. And what an interesting guy. 700 times. And you're right. It's one of the most animated characters. A lot of the humor uh, comes from it. I mean, it's very commanding presence. Was Do you know, you might not know this, was he also the guy who played that role the first time Hamilton came through Cleveland? I don't know the answer to that, but he's been doing it for four years, and I believe it was 2019 when it came through, so that would line up. So he might have been. So people who saw it the first time might have seen him. There are a couple of touring companies, so maybe we don't have the same one we had last time. It's a good piece. It's on Cleveland.com. It's by Joey Morona. Check it out. That's it for today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast.